Hi everyone, welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. We're gonna to talk today about a topic uh, many of us struggle about, um, whether you are a caregiver of someone with dementia or you yourself um, um, has been diagnosed with dementia, and that is both um, managing behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Well, I'm so happy uh, to have with us today, um, Dr. Steven Savat. He joins us, he's a neuropsychologist, has a lot of experience uh, around this topic, um, speaking to many people impacted by dementia. Welcome, Dr. Savat. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's first just um, start with the very, very basics. Um, what are we talking about when we're talking about both behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia? Well, the term BPSD, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, is something that is created by physicians to describe signs and symptoms of illness. And that's typically the way physicians work because they need to differentiate different kinds of illnesses from one another so that they can devise the treatments that are appropriate to each. But um, there are what they very often refer to as symptoms of dementia can also be thought of from the per perspective of a person who's diagnosed as behavioral and psychological signs of distress or basic personal signs of distress that people are upset. Now, if, if you, for example, if if suddenly you couldn't tie your shoelaces anymore or sign your name after you spent an, a lifetime doing it, you might be getting up, you might be upset about that or even depressed about it. And so that's not really a symptom of dementia as much as it is an, a very appropriate reaction to a loss that matters to you. And so if a person is depressed or saddened or gets angry about not being able to do something that he or she always was able to do, that's really not a sign of, of disease as much as it is a symptom of being able to figure out that I ought to be able to do this, I can't do it, I have always been proud of my ability to do that, and now I can't, and that really upsets me. And how people express their upsetness can vary. Some people can become depressed, some people could scream. So these kinds of reactions are very often perfectly appropriate. And the irony of all this is, of course, if a person has incurred those kinds of losses and they don't react at all, then from a medical point of view, they are described as blithefully unaware of their deficits. So in a crazy sort of way, you can't win from that point of view. Either you're showing signs of disease or you're showing a different kind of sign of disease and that you're not aware that you have a problem. <laughs> So are we, so in, in other words, these are just human reactions. Is it fair to say that? Yes, many are. I'll give you an example. I mean, I spent lots of time administering neuropsychological tests to people at Johns Hopkins Alzheimer's disease outpatient clinic. And you know, these are tests that are all, go on and on and on. And some questions are difficult and some are simple. And there are people who, in, in, the, in response to simple questions that they could not understand, some people started screaming, cursing, storming out of the room. From a medical point of view, that's emotionally labile or, or a, a, it's called a, a kind of a outlandish kind of reaction. When in fact, you know, this is perfectly reasonable. Of course, maybe that same person wouldn't curse in the past. 
and maybe the brain damage has disinhibited him or her in a way that now he's or she's cursing, but the person doesn't curse and react that way to things that they do correctly. So they're able to discriminate the difference. And that's really important. So, but I, I guess we think of it as symptoms um, for the sole reason that a person can act um, uncharacter uncharacteristically unlike themselves. So, mm -hmm. like you said, um, you know, anger outbursts or swearing when the person mm -hmm. never swore before. Um, so, is it wrong to think of these that blame the disease? The disease is causing these types of behaviors. Well, yes and no. Okay, give, give you an example. My my own mother had, you know, she's gone now for 20 years, but she had a vascular dementia. So that means that she had a number of small strokes and that created difficulties for her that could be described as dementia. Now, her strokes were in her frontal lobe. And when I was growing up, my mother was the queen of propriety. If I uttered a mild curse word, she would say, must you speak that way? I knew how to walk on the curbside of a woman when I was 10 years old. I mean, she was very, very strong about that sort of thing. Now she had some small strokes and she's in the hospital and she had a urinary tract infection. My dad and I were there. She was going to be discharged in the next day. We brought a, an adult diaper for her to wear because she had a catheter and she needed to have that diaper and they should have put it on anyway. So she, we're in the room with her and a nurse comes in to check her vital signs and very pleasant. And as the nurse is walking out of the room, my mother says, God damn blonde bitch. Now, my mother, my mother knew those words all her life. And for all the time I was growing up before she was ill, she could have been thinking those things, but she was able to stop herself from saying them. Now, because of the brain damage, she wasn't able to do that. So yes, in a way, the brain damage ca caused her to be disinhibited, if you will. She couldn't edit, but it wasn't as if she was never thinking those things before. So, so, so I don't know if that's good news or bad news because blame it on the disease. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, but I understand what you're saying. It, it was, is, is it maybe the subconscious coming alive and perhaps the filter has gone? Well, the filter has gone. I mean, when you think about it, just, just think about this for a minute. And, and this is not about dementia or anything like that. But when, when we're children, really young children, and we, we, we bang our shin or we do something like that and we start crying. And as we get older, we learn to be able to hold that back. And, and even as adults, for another example, even as, as adults, you go to a film with someone, a real tearjerker film, and you go with somebody with whom you don't really want to share that vulnerable side of you. And so you bite your lip, choke back the tears because you're able to inhibit, and that's part of frontal lobe function. So if you don't have that function, then you can't exercise that inhibition and stop yourself. So in a way, it's not like this is a different person. It's the same person who is not able to inhibit things the way she used to do. So 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I guess my next question is, as um, if you have a loved one with dementia, how are you supposed to deal with these type of outbursts, um, you know, to the person? I mean, what what types of communication? I mean, this has happened to many of us mm -hmm. where inappropriate things are said. Um, people are imagining things that don't necessarily, I mean, there's hallucinations. Um, so how how do you communicate? Well, one thing that, that I would do, I mean, there are, I can give you a couple of examples, actually. So one thing that when, she, when my mother would curse or something like that, my father, who was her primary care, and now this, he's, he was in his 80s and so was she. So, you know, and, and he would say, well, you know, I don't speak that way to you, so please don't speak that way to me. And she would immediately say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to. So she really did feel sorry. And he said, look, man, please don't speak to me that way. I don't do that to you. Now, another thing, that's one side of this. Another side is speak to the emotions. Speak to, the, speak to what's being, you know, you really sound upset. You sound really, really angry, sad, whatever the emotion is. So, for example, I, I, ran, I walked into an adult day center and I, and I, I saw a man in the hall. I had never met him before. And I was there all the time. Well, a lot of the time. And he was going on and on and on and on. He was saying lots of words that together didn't really add up to something I could understand. But the way he was talking and the expressions on his face, were, were, it was very clear that he was upset about something. So when I could get a word in edgewise, I said to him, do you feel like crying? And he said, you're damn right I do. And that was the first coherent sentence he spoke. So uh, one thing to do is to speak to the emotion and say, well, you sound like you feel really trapped. You sound like you feel really upset. To, to get into it, you know, instead of saying, shut that down, say, well, let's talk about how you're feeling here. What's going on? And be a person like that, you know? it's. Uh, so what about, I'm seeing we're getting some comments and um, what about for the person with dementia? I mean, I, I know um, one of our viewers just wrote that saying, you know, I curse like mad and my wife gets so mad at me. Right. And so, you know, what do you say with the people with dementia who are experiencing maybe these anger outbursts mm -hmm. or inappropriateness? Like how how should what strategies can they use? Well, I think one thing, if 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 the person in question is saying, look, I really get so angry and I start cursing and my wife gets really annoyed with me. Well, obviously this is not happening right now. So this person has made a memory of his wife getting annoyed with him. And so that same person could very well, having blown out all of that stuff, say, there I go again. You know, can you, can you find it in your heart to forgive me for that outburst? You know, I, it's just coming out of my mouth. And I mean, that's kind of, Maybe, you know, that's the sort of thing. If you can reflect on the meaning of all that stuff and, and, and recognize that that's happening, you can also try to soften it and say, like, I'm, look, I'm really sorry. Like my mother did. My dad said, look, I don't talk to you that way. And he, she said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't. It, it, because people do feel sorry. You know, having a diagnosis of dementia doesn't mean you don't feel sorry about it. 
Okay, we're getting more questions in. I want to get to them. Um, uh, someone is asking, how do you deal with someone who has extreme jealousy because of the dementia and says very hurtful things? I, I mean, I have to admit, I've seen this in my own family. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all of a sudden this jealousy and rage that didn't really exist before. At least we didn't know about it. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, not not knowing anything about the individual who's asking the question and what that relationship has been in the past. One thing that I, I would say is that I would think about the idea that the person who is expressing jealousy and, and really being upset, that that person is feeling incredibly vulnerable. And that person may very well not be, and I don't, again, I don't know the answers to this question, but the questioner will. Uh, that person who's been diagnosed may have incurred losses in different kinds of abilities that were really important to him and, or her, however the case, whatever the case may be. I don't, I don't recall at the moment. But in any event, um, that person is feeling very vulnerable because it he may be feeling i am not i am not showing the attributes or displaying the attributes that were very very important and were were admired by my loved one and because i'm not that way i'm not the person i used to be and so for example one this one man who was very upset who said you're damn right i do he had spent the last three, every day of the last three years with his wife. And now it got to a point where she couldn't take him with her on errands. And so she enrolled him in this adult day center for a few days a week. And he couldn't recall why he was there or when she was coming to fetch him or anything like that. He started, the way he was talking, it sounded like he was afraid she was having an affair because he didn't feel like he was the guy he used to be. And he couldn't give her what he could before. And so maybe she, and she's the most beautiful woman in the world and desire, desired by every single man who's walking, no matter who they are, you know? I mean, there are six million Chinese who would be thrilled to be with my wife, you know? And, and so he's really upset because he's vulnerable and he needs to be reassured. And so, I mean, it may be constant reassurance, but you know, I don't know. I, I tell my wife I love her many, many times every day. Now, I don't know in other relationships if people tell them each other them, especially if they've been married for 50 years, you know, you know that old song from Fiddler on the Roof, do you love me? Do I want it? You know, I mean, so I, that's where I would come from. Right. Well, that does make sense. I mean, and a lot of what you're describing is just human reaction, right? Which I love yeah. because I think we, we talked about this before um, uh, we went on Facebook, which is, you know, we tend to put people with dementias in a per, uh, in a box about, mm -hmm. oh, this is the disease, rather than think this is a human being with feelings, right? Especially yeah. as the disease progresses um, because of behaviors that become uncharacteristic, right? And yeah. uh, so I love the way of looking at it. Like we're all just human beings and it's human nature to have human reaction. Um, but this next question I thought was a good one, which is, how can you tell the difference between between depression, grief due to loss of skills and disinhibition? Well, they could they could be happening together. <laughs> so, it one of the things that that and this is where physicians can 
come in handy, really. When a person has an MRI, you can see where the brain damage is. And so if the brain damage is in the frontal lobes, for example, then, okay, this is a disinhibition sort of thing. Now, if it's not, then now this person is reacting that way in response to the depression or grief that he or she is experiencing. Now, it may be that, you know, I, here, I'll give you an example. I was giving a, a lecture in Toronto some years ago, and during the question and answer period, this man says, I have Alzheimer's disease and I'm glad. And I said, really? Well, why is that? And he said, because I can say anything I want. And the whole audience cracked up laughing. And I, I said, well, hey, you want to go on the road with me? We can we can do something here. And it, it really, the, you know, it can be both. It could be a person is really depressed and grieving. And okay, you have that kind of damage. You can't stop yourself from saying things that you otherwise would. Or, hey, you know, I have... I'm from New York City, man. I know those curse words. And uh, I might, I really have to work to stop myself from saying those things sometimes. So it could be both. So you have to kind of, if you get the MRIs and you see where the brain damage is, you can sort of differentiate the two. Yeah. Okay, this next question is, um, my mother has vascular dementia. Her husband of 52 years, my father passed away in November. I'm flying her down to Florida in 10 days to move her into a senior living facility closer to my sister. Should I treat it like a vacation? Like we're going to visit my sister or should I be honest with her? I don't, <laughs> her because I don't want to stress her out more than she already is. So giving her maybe changing the perception of the situation, is that okay? Just in terms of making the person happier? Well, you know, yeah, that's a tricky one because again, I don't know, I don't know the mother and I don't know it, but, and I don't know what she can recall, but if, but if she is the kind of person, now if she's leaving her home where she's lived for decades, that's a big jolt. It could be a tremendous jolt because home is really important to people. So, you know, if it depends on what she can retain and how, and sometimes people can retain a lot, I mean, but you have to repeat it very, very often. And, and now I don't know is the, I don't recall if you told me this or not, but is the daughter going to be living close by to the mother when she moves her to Florida or, or something? One daughter will be close by. Okay, so, okay, we're gonna, we're moving to Florida. <laughs> we're gonna move to Florida and, and we can go down there beforehand. It can show you where you're going to be living. And so-and-so is gonna be here and gonna be seeing you every day. Well, when am I going to come home? Well, it won't be for a while, which is the truth. So you would say, well, never. Well, oh, okay, well, that strikes up a whole other series of things. If it's possible to have her select some furniture that she would like to take there so that wherever she's living will have some of her things, that would be very helpful. So, but I wouldn't just, I wouldn't, Again, you know, I, I wouldn't just say, oh, blanket, not knowing these people, lie to her and say, well, we're going on vacation. Well, when is this vacation going to end? You know, yeah. so never. You know, not well, to I think also there's this tendency, I mean, and admittedly, we've done it in my family to think, um, oh, well, they might not remember. So therefore, it's okay, right? Well, yes and no, because what a person, um, per, people confuse remembering with recalling 
And recalling is not the only way to remember. So if I ask you- Explain that a little bit more. Tell us what the difference is. So if I ask you what day of the week is this, and now I'm asking you to recall that it's Thursday. And I've been in testing people, I've asked, well, what day of the week is this? And a person says, I don't know. And so on my own, because I'm a psychologist, I said, well, is it Monday? No. Is it Saturday? No. Is it Thursday? Yeah. And it was. So a person may not be able to recall something, but might be able to recognize the right answer when he or she hears it. Those two things are, that's one aspect of memory, recalling and recognizing. But there's another one called implicit memory, where a person does not recall having had an experience, but has made a memory of it and reacts accordingly. I'll give you an example. I was at a, at a day center where I've been associated for years. I, I, there was a woman with Alzheimer's. And one day at the end of lunch, when the staff and people were clearing tables and trays, I said to this woman, and she knew who I was. I mean, she recognized me, but you know, she didn't necessarily know I was a clinical neuropsychologist. But in any event, I said, can you do me a favor? And she perked up and sure. I said, would you go over to Frank, who was another participant, pick up his tray, and empty it in the trash can, please. And she did it. Fine. I wasn't there the next day. Two days later, I came back. And at the end of lunch, she came over to me and said, do you have something for me to do? And I said, like what? And she said, I don't know. Now, she had never asked that question before of me. And she saw me through two or three days a week. So she made a memory of me having asked her to do something, but she couldn't recall what it was. But what it was made her feel good because it was do me a favor. I need your help. How often do people with dementia get asked to help me? They're always on the receiving end. And that and, that really highlights people with dementia still feel, of course, right? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And would like to be helpful. My goodness, if you've been helpful all your life, now you're a burden. And yeah. so, and so does that help in, in a way? I mean, yeah, no, again, I love what you have to say because you force us all to think not of the disease, but of the human being first. And that's yeah. so important um, just in terms of compassion, in terms of patience, in terms of really understanding from the, the person's perspective. And, and I think that's we really all have to remind ourselves of that, you know, to make to, to, to really make the whole situation um, better from all angles. So we have, a, we have a more practical question coming in. Um, when a person with dementia refuses to shower, what are they trying to say? Or are they just acting out? Is it a form of rebellion? Well, it could be a number of things. Now, you know, uh, just to segue, I'll come back to that. But in, in some of the testimony of, of survivors of concentration camps during World War II, survivors said they could always tell who wasn't going to make it because the people who weren't going to make it stopped doing any personal hygiene stuff. I mean, even if it was trying to wash with soup water that they didn't drink, something that they you do something to, to engage in personal hygiene. So there are times when people become depressed and then they just don't want to do that anymore. They, they're, that's part of it, being depressed. Another, but there's another side of this as well. And that is, and this happened in a, 
and a, a, an assisted living, multi-level assisted living place in, in Toronto, the Baycrest Geri Geriatric Care Center. And they have floors where people who have all kinds of memory disorders live. And there was a woman who, who didn't want to take a shower or a bath. And so, again, this is a, such a personal thing. And you say, it's time to take a shower. Well, you know, nobody ever tells an adult person it's time to take a shower. I mean, I, I, that's just, that doesn't happen. All of a sudden, somebody's telling you this and you're feeling, oh my God, now they're telling me this. But in this case, the, the staff figured out a negotiation that allowed the person to still, still to make a decision, but to also to take care of hygiene. And so the, the negotiation was today, we'll wash your right arm. Tomorrow we'll wash your left arm. And the next day we'll wash your right leg. You know, and the, so it, it wasn't an entire invasion, but it was, you still, you, you're, we'll, how about if we just do that today? Okay, <laughs> so you gotta kind of start negotiating in, in these ways because people can feel terrible. And there was a woman whose husband, she had Alzheimer's and her husband had a, a, a nurse coming in to, to give her a bath or something. And he said, whenever the nurse is coming, my wife starts crying convulsively. And he was looking at that as a symptom of dementia. And I asked, well, you know, judging by your wife's age, I would suspect that she always thought, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, she always thought of taking a bath as something that was very private. And that, that, so for her being naked in front of a stranger, I mean, this is outrageous, he, of course not. And to have somebody coming in to bathe her, well, now I, I've, I've lost so much that somebody, some stranger is gonna do this to me. So it, you know, you start thinking of it that way and you say, well, okay, well, it kind of stands to reason that somebody doesn't wanna have that happen, but now it's time to negotiate. Yeah, and so absolutely. listen, you know, you, you got to make a decision here, but we really need to do this. But here's how we might be able to work this out. Okay, we have another question. Um, Dr. Saba, due to my Alzheimer's, I've been taking prescription medication to help me with mood, um, for example, agitation, anxiety. Sometimes I feel um, as though I'm unable to express my authentic emotions. I'm fearful I won't be able to mourn the death of a friend or celebrate a birth authentically. It saddens right. me. Have you come across this in your research? Uh, no, I have not. But I guess my question for the questioner is, the, is the medication you're taking making you feel emotionally flattened so that you don't really feel any highs or lows? You're just kind of even all the time. If you can, if you can ask the question you're asking, uh, that you're saying, I'm, I'm concerned that I might not be able to feel authentically, it sounds to me like the medication is a general kind of tranquilizing effect, the flattening out the emotion. And, and, your, and your reaction is really appropriate. Now, in, in, in another sense, the reason you're getting that medication could be that you're what, whatever is it called agitation, you know, I don't know what the behavior is that somebody else is calling agitation, but you might have a lot of good reason to be agitated and or upset. And in that case, what you need is somebody to talk with about that. Because if you can verbalize what you just verbalized, you could talk about why you're upset and what's bothering you. So I, I hope that begins to answer your question. 
Okay, and um, just last question, because we're running out of time, but um, another person is asking, I'm at a loss. Um, my mom keeps telling me she's hungry, and then when I make dinner, she eats nothing. She's lost six pounds in the last two weeks. So that could be very worrisome. Yes, and and that it is. And now maybe, maybe it might be a better way of going out about this is to make smaller meals that are, I don't know if your mom can use utensils. So if, if she can't, then finger foods, but always enough to take the edge off, but not a formal meal because she may not be able to handle that. So I'm hungry. Here, have some, have some of this. You know, I mean, I, I do that all the time. I just take the edge off because I really don't feel like eating a full meal. So, but I, I, that's why I would start there because she's, and, and I also ask, you know, if she's, if she's really feeling depressed, because a lot of times when people are depressed, they stop eating. I mean, anybody who's been in a broken up romance knows you just don't eat anymore because you're so sad. So there's, there could be another element to this as well. Okay, well, Dr. Sabat, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is um, to talk to you. Um, just the fact that you've made us really understand perspective on this and also given us some really good advice, um, practical advice, which is often very difficult to get. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more questions. Um, we're going to come back to you if that's okay. And sure. Um, where can people find out more about you and your research? And I know you've written books, um, so tell us a little bit. Well, I've got, you can, you can Google me, but yeah, then there's plenty there, but, but on Amazon, you can find books that I've written. Uh, the latest one is called Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, What Everyone Needs to Know. And it was written in the, with the, with the general reader in mind. I mean, professionals can learn from it too, but for people who don't, People say, well, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Well, that book will answer those kinds of questions and then go further along the lines I've been talking to tonight. So those books are available and you can Google me and there's all kinds of stuff. And we'll, we, we'll link to you we, we'll, on this Facebook. But thank you so much for your time. Um, and I know I found this conversation extremely helpful. It's been a pleasure for me. I live for this really. So thank you. So if you want to see this interview in its entirety, you can go to beingpatient.com. We always upload them. Um, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, Being Patient, um, so that you can um, understand and know more about more of these upcoming talks, as well as we will always paste them on our Facebook group. So please join our group, Being Patient Alzheimer's, um, or we have a closed group called Being Patient Brain Talks. Thanks very much for watching. Just ah, okay. <laughs>